not all sin is the same. Now that's one of our most common Christian cliches, especially here in our Bible Belt culture, is that all sin is equal and all sin is the same. But like most of those Bible Belt cliches, it's only about half true. At best. See, all sin is the same in that all sin is an infinite offense against an infinite God and all sin warrants death. All sin is the same in that the wages of sin is death, wages of even one sin is death. And so all sin is equal, whether it's a lie that you told or a test that you cheated on or an affair that you had, whatever it is, all sin is equal in that all sin, it warrants the wrath of God and separation from God. But not all sin is equal in severity. The Bible is equally as clear about that, that not all sin is the same when it comes to severity, that there are differing levels of sin, just as there are differing levels of commandment. If there is a greatest commandment, then there is clearly a greatest sin. In fact, I believe that the Bible teaches that not only in the next life will there be differing degrees of reward for the believer, but there will also be differing degrees of condemnation and torment for the unbeliever. Dependent upon their sin. This morning we are going to see that loud and clear. It is going to be apparent to us as we read the passage from this morning that not all sin is the same. That not all sin is equal in level. In fact, we are going to see Jesus today drop a bombshell on us and say that there is a sin in which we can commit that is unforgivable. Unforgivable. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We'll be back in the book of Matthew. If you'll remember, I told you that my OCD type A personality was really struggling, kind of doing half of chapter 12 and then going and doing the family series and then coming back. Today's when my, my trembling and my withdrawals are put at ease. Because we are back, baby. We are back. So if you have your Bibles and you return to Matthew chapter 12, would you stand with me as we read God's inerrant word together? We'll read today verses 22 through 32. And God's word says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it, be, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, 
every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to our passage this morning in verses 22 through 32, we really come to a striking scene. Jesus is in the midst of a miraculous ministry of mercy in which crowds of people are gathering around him and Jesus is healing all of those that come. Our story takes account one specific man that, re- that is able to experience the mercy of Jesus and the healing of Jesus. It says that it is a man that is so demon oppressed that he is physically debilitated. That he cannot see and he cannot speak. And so as the man is brought to Jesus and, and in terms that is really kind of amazing if you'll notice the Bible is almost nonchalant about how it says it, isn't it? It's almost like it's thrown in there. You have a a demon-oppressed man. He cannot see. He cannot speak. And Jesus healed him. Done. That's all it is. Because it's that easy, right? It it genuinely is that you, you come to Christ with your sickness. You come to Christ with your ailment, and you're made well. You're just made well. So there was no fanfare. There's no fireworks and parades. He just healed him. There that day among the crowd were two groups of people, though. And those two groups of people among the crowd that day had two startling different responses and reactions to what they had witnessed in Jesus. The first among those were the the general population, and they are amazed by what they have seen. They have been familiar with what the prophet Isaiah has said, that Matthew has reminded us here in verse chapter 12 and verse 18, when he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. So the, the minds of the general population are going back to that prophecy just quoted by Matthew all the way back to Isaiah. And in their amazement, in their, in their, their stunned uh, state of, of mind, they immediately begin to say, could it be? Could it be? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah of God? Could this be the one that was promised to us? The one upon whom the Spirit of God would dwell? The God-man that had come to rescue us from our plight? Could it be? The other group of people there, a more influential group, were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a much different response to the work of Christ. The Pharisees, not denying what had just taken place, not denying the power that that Christ had clearly just demonstrated, instead began to explain it in a different way. Surely, this man is a demoniac. Surely this man is operating according to the the power given to him by Satan himself. Surely this man is only capable of doing this because he is a sorcerer. 
Sorcery, of course, in Jesus' day was a capital offense. And we know that the Pharisees have already committed just a few passages earlier in Matthew chapter 12, had begun conspiring against Jesus to lay waste to him and to murder him. And so maybe this is the opportunity for them. If they can prove that Jesus is a sorcerer operating by the power of Beelzebul, which is a funny name for Jesus. Some people believe it, it actually means Lord of the Dung Heap. That's where we the, the book Lord of the Flies, if you're familiar with that novel, it kind of comes from that same that same term. That, that if he's operating from that, then they can do away with Jesus. But what's amazing about that to me is that whether you were a friend or you were a foe, whether you were indifferent, ambivalent, or completely against Christ Jesus, if you would have been there that day, you could not deny what you saw. This man was famously demon-oppressed. This man was famously debilitated. It seems to be almost certain that that, this is the case because everyone is awestruck by what they see. So even the Pharisees have witnessed what Jesus has done and cannot deny the power that they have witnessed, cannot deny the miraculous that has happened before them. If anybody would have wanted to discredit Jesus' miraculous power, Jesus' divine power, it was the Pharisees. They would have loved to have shown that this is some kind of Benny Hinn trick made to deceive people. But this is not the case at all. Instead, having witnessed such power, they have to explain it away. I know that most likely there are skeptics among us this morning. Maybe it's a teenage boy. Maybe it's a college student girl. Maybe it's a husband that's been drugged here by your wife week after week. And you're skeptical of what you hear of Jesus, and you're skeptical and unsure of what you know about Jesus. And I just ask you the same thing that they were asked that day. How will you explain him? How will you explain him? Because if you had been there on this day more than 2,000 years ago, and you had witnessed what they saw, whether you were against him or indifferent or a friend to him, you would have been left trying to figure out how it is that you could explain what you just saw. So how do you explain the carpenter's son that flipped the Roman Empire upside down? How do you explain the carpenter's son that divided time? How will you explain Jesus? There's only two explanations. He is either the son of God filled with the power of God through the spirit of God and owed our adoration and our worship and our surrender, or he is a sorcerer filled with the power of the devil doing divination and all types of wicked things, and he is worthy of our repudiation as a master manipulator. How will you explain it? Jesus affirms the crowd that day. He affirms the crowd that they've got it right, that there really are only two options possible. There really are only two camps when it comes to the the school of thought about what they've seen. There's really only two possibilities and Jesus affirms that and he affirms that by showing us the foolishness of one of those positions and the glory of the other of those positions. First of all, he addresses the position of the Pharisees. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they will be your judges. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, let's unpack your little argument here. Let's unpack. See, you know the Pharisees were proud of the argument they had. They believed they had developed an airtight case. Surely, they can't, if they could get everybody to realize that this is witchcraft that we're seeing. This is sorcery that we're seeing. This is, this is Satan empowering someone to do his work. And man, they believed their argument was rock solid, baby. And then Jesus sank their boat. Jesus says, first of all, what you're saying is absolutely foolishness. It is completely illogical. You discredit. You don't give Satan the credit that he deserves. Everybody knows, especially Satan, that a kingdom divided upon itself will collapse. A house divided cannot stand. So you think Satan's going to attack his army with his own navy? You think Satan is going to give me the power to then destroy the demons that are doing the work that he wants them to do and instructed them to do. So you think Satan empowered me with demonic power to then go out and destroy those who are doing work by demonic power. That's, that, that's your logic? That's the argument you feel good about? Completely preposterous. Completely illogical. Not only does he show it to be illogical, he shows it to be inconsistent. He said, see, in, in their day, among the Pharisees were a group of itinerant uh, exorcists. You, you can read about them in the book of Acts. They would go out and they would go, and by the power of God and in the name of God, they would attempt to call out demons from demon-oppressed men, sometimes to the glory of God. And so Jesus is here, and he's doing the same work, in the same way, though much more effectively, and much more authoritatively. And they are... Ain't they are wanting to credit what he's doing to the work of demons while they have credited the work that they have been doing to the work of God. Jesus is looking them in the face and saying, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. How can you not see what you are saying? How can you not see how foolish you really are? You see... When we come to Christ, we have the same questions facing us. When we come to Christ and when we see Christ, the, the same questions come bubbling up in us. But what I want you to see this morning is that the problem with every argument that dismisses Jesus is that every argument that dismisses Jesus is filled with holes. You'll have somebody that feels so proud of the argument that they've come up with, so proud of, of the evidence that they feel like they can stack up against Jesus. But the problem with it is, is once you get beneath all of that, there's nothing left. It's a, it's a house of cards that surely falls. For 2,000 years, you know what people have wanted to find? For 2,000 years, people have wanted to find the bones of Jesus. The bones of Jesus. The Jews were looking for them the day after Jesus was murdered. They, they know where Jesus was buried. They've got guards stationed outside his tomb. They witnessed it. They sealed the tomb. And the Jews were anxious to keep a record of his bones. Why? If you've got the bones of Jesus, the whole Christian faith collapses on itself. Because the resurrection is not true anymore, right? 
And so beginning in the day of Jesus, for 2,000 years since Jesus, the most sought-after bones in archaeological history have been the bones of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, they have found no bones. Because our Savior is risen, resurrected. He is not there. Let me blow our finite minds here for a second. Do you want to know what the most plausible explanation is for the life of Jesus? Plausible. When you look at the evidence, and you hear the stories, and you hear the testimonies of the witnesses, even those, some of whom were not friends of Christ, when you read the evidence, the most plausible explanation of Christ is that he was the God-man that did the miraculous by the Spirit of God and was resurrected from the dead. So stop trying to dismiss Jesus with your shoddy logic. And your finite mind. Your argument is filled with holes. And you know it. You know it. But Jesus didn't just show them the foolishness of the Pharisees' response. Jesus spoke to the glory of the crowd's response. Jesus spoke to the glory of that response which saw the work of Christ and saw the miraculous and divine healing of Christ and responded by saying, could this be the son of David? Responded in amazement, exalting the name of Christ, acknowledging the power and the might of Christ and the work of God through Christ. Notice what Jesus says. These are very interesting words. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God... That I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's what he says. If you reject option A. If you see how illogical and inconsistent uh, answer and response A is, consider with me response B. Consider with me the alternative possibility. The alternative possibility is that if I am the son of David, if I am filled with the spirit of God, if I am working through the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come with me. That the kingdom of God has come with me and has launched an all-out assault on the kingdom of Satan. And it is going to take it down. So here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you think I did this by the power of Satan? You woefully underestimate my power. You woefully underestimate my power. You think Satan is capable of doing what I'm doing? Let me tell you who Satan is. Satan is the one that I will bind up myself. Satan is the one among whom I will plunder. I will steal from him his treasure. I will steal from him what he wants. He has no authority. He has no power, no ability to slow me down whatsoever. I will bind him. I will plunder him. I will be to the destruction of his kingdom and the building of mine. This is good news for us, church. This is good news for us. Because I think on a week like this, when we look around and we see, it's hard for us not to believe that Satan's winning, isn't it? 
We look around and we see men being shot and brutalized. We see officers being taken down. We see officers being lured in and ambushed. We see bathrooms that are available to, to everybody. We, are we supposed to send our little girls in there where pedophiles can be? And it's easy for us to become overcome by the circumstances. It's easy for us to be overcome by the, by the travesties that are happening around us. And it's easy for us, even for a fleeting second, to believe that the enemy is winning. But brothers and sisters, I remind you that the kingdom of God is coming against the kingdom of the enemy. And he will take it down. He will bind the enemy. And he has already begun to plunder his kingdom. And one day, finally and ultimately, he will cast him into the lake of fire where he will experience torment forever. The kingdom of God is victorious. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry about. We have nothing to consider because the kingdom of God will bind the kingdom of Satan. He has no power whatsoever to overcome him. So Jesus is saying, don't underestimate my power. Don't overestimate the power of the enemy. And then he's saying, but you must choose. You must choose. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either going to gather with me or you're going to be scattered by me. But you cannot remain neutral in this war. You cannot remain neutral in this battle. You're either going to be for and in the kingdom of God or you are going to be for and in the kingdom of Satan. There is no room for neutrality in the gospel. The gospel is exclusive. It is exclusive to those who repent of their sin and place their undying faith in Christ Jesus and surrender their lives to Christ Jesus and follow after Christ Jesus with everything that they have. You must choose. You must choose this day. And then Jesus drops the bombshell on us. The plot line of the Bible is forgiveness, isn't it? The plot line of the Bible is forgiveness. Graceful, gracious redemption, merciful redemption of us by a sovereign God that had no reason to do it. You're only three chapters into the Bible when man has fallen and sinned and has needed the forgiveness of God. And what does he find? He finds the forgiveness of God. We go through all of the Old Testament and story after story after story is not of the strong heroes that many of us thought them to be when we were children. Instead, it is the fallen sinners that are restored by the gracious hand of God. We see Moses was forgiven and restored. Noah forgiven and restored. We see Abraham forgiven and restored. We see Isaac forgiven and restored. We see all of our heroes, Jonah, forgiven and restored. Over and over and over, as we go over the scope of the Old Testament, forgiveness dominates the theme. We come into the New Testament and the New Covenant, and it's only amplified. We see Peter restored after he denies Christ. We see Thomas forgiven for his doubt. We see Paul forgiven for blasphemy and murder. We see Christ willfully dying on the cross for the redemption of all mankind. Forgiveness. So when we hear Jesus say the word unforgivable, 
unforgivable, it hits us like a dump truck. It's like we're at the intersection and we're T-boned and we never saw it coming. We've been here and we've been programmed to think forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, this will not be forgiven you. This is incredibly important for us to listen to. Incredibly important for us to understand that this is the strongest warning that I have read in all of the Bible. That there is something that can be true of you, something that you can do that can be unforgivable in the sight of God. Now Jesus is is, uh, careful to give us helpful context. And I just want you to think about that statement for a second. Jesus is the one who said if your eye is sinning, is causing you to sin, rip it out, gouge it out. Jesus is the one that said, if you're going to follow after me, you have to leave your mother and father. Let the dead bury the dead and come after me. Jesus is the one who said that if you want to be my disciples, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and come after me. Jesus is not one to qualify his words. Jesus makes bold, strong statements all the time and then just lets them hang. This warning is so severe. This warning is so, so uh, intense that Jesus stops for a moment and gives us some qualification. Gives us some context. And he says every sin is forgivable. Every blasphemy is forgivable. You can blaspheme against me. You can reject me. You can denounce me. And that can be forgiven you. That if you will repent of your sin, all of your sin, true to the gospel, true to what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and 3, true to what has been said throughout the scriptures, if you will repent of your sin, God will forgive you. And I think that's helpful because it kind of helps us understand what the unforgivable sin is not. A lot of churches, a lot of pastors over the last 2,000 years have done some very harmful things, I believe, with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So the unforgivable sin is not murder and is not suicide because we see murderers often forgiven in the word of God. The unforgivable sin is not adultery, it's not an affair, and it's not homosexuality because we see the sexually immoral frequently forgiven in the word of God. It is not the atheist that has committed the unforgivable sin as we frequently see unbelief forgiven in the word of God. So what is it? He says it's a particular brand of blasphemy. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. First of all, what is blasphemy? What what does that word mean? Blasphemy is the purposeful, intentional, willful slander and rejection of God. It's what we see in our passage here. You have the Spirit doing a work through Christ Jesus, doing the miraculous, healing the demon-oppressed man, the man who could not see or speak, now seeing and speaking. And they see that, and rather than giving credit to the Spirit of God and the power of God, they give credit to demons. They give credit to Satan. They are slandering God. They are rejecting the work of God. God has worked so that they might perceive Him and see Him. He has revealed Himself to them, and yet they have utterly rejected Him. They have blasphemed Him. But Jesus says that blasphemy is forgivable. 
So we still aren't sure why this particular sin is unforgivable. And I think for us to understand it, we need to understand better the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to, under, we need to have some, some understanding of how the Holy Spirit operates, particularly in how the Holy Spirit relates to the forgiveness of man. See, think about how the Holy Spirit works through the miracles. John tells us this. In John's gospel, there are seven signs. And at the end, after the last sign, John says that these signs were done so that you might see them and believe. That the miracles take place just as we see here in Matthew chapter 12. So that God, might, that Jesus might be revealed to us as the Savior. So that, that God, we might be drawn to him by the work that he's done. We might be drawn to him and his might and his glory. That we might be drawn to Christ as being the one and the only one that is strong enough and sufficient enough for all of our needs and all of our weaknesses. And at the same time, when we see these miracles, they're supposed to confront us with our own weakness, with our own inadequacy, with our own insufficiency. And so you, you see in these miracles that they are revealing the glory of God, and at the same time, they are revealing the weakness of man. This is how the Spirit always works when it comes to salvation. This is how the Spirit moves in all of our lives in, in, when it, to bring us to redemption. There's always this twofold action. That first of all, the, sp the Spirit draws us to God. He draws us to God. That the Spirit is our eye-opener. That we are born blinded to sin, blinded to God, blinded to, to Him being everywhere. And so what the Spirit does is the Spirit illuminates our minds. He opens our eyes so that we can understand the gospel in the Word of God. So that the Word of God will move in our hearts as it is preached to us. So that as we look around the majesty of creation, we can perceive that God is there. And so that we might be awestruck and empowered and appreciate what we know before could not. So, so the Spirit is the eye-opener, drawing us to the glory of God. Drawing us to the power of God. Drawing us to the sovereignty of God. And at the same time, the Spirit convicts us of our sin, John 16 says. And so not only is the Spirit the eye-opener, but the Spirit is also the heart-softener. That you and your, and your, as a sinner are resistant to the Word of God. You are resistant to acknowledging your own weaknesses. You are resistant to acknowledging your own failures. And so the Spirit has to soften it. He has to bring sorrow into your life over your sin. He has to work in you and work and, and knead your heart like a, a baker kneading dough, softening it so that when the word of God comes in, it doesn't land on hard soil. But instead, it's broken and repentant. You see, if that doesn't happen for you, if the spirit of God does not draw you to God, if the Spirit of God does not convict you of your sin and soften your heart, you cannot be forgiven. Do you understand that? And you cannot be forgiven because if that does not happen, you cannot repent. And forgiveness is only the result of Christian, of, of gospel repentance. Of turning from your sin, turning from yourself, and turning entirely to Jesus. And I think this gets to the nature of the unforgivable sin. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because it removes from you the ability to repent. 
that after so many years of flagrantly and willfully and purposefully rejecting the softening of your heart and rejecting the, the drawing of you toward God over and over and over, the Spirit has convicted your heart over and over and over. The Spirit has opened your eyes and over and over and over as you have grabbed a hold of the chair in front of you and said, no, I will not surrender. I will not repent. I will not turn. That eventually... The Spirit of God may withdraw from you to never convict you again, to never soften your heart again, to never draw you to God again. And if the Spirit withdraws from you the ability to repent, then the Spirit has withdrawn from you the ability to be forgiven. Because if you do not repent, you cannot be forgiven this morning I talked to some of you that harden your heart every single week you've hardened your heart hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times I'm pleading with you with everything that is in me do not harden them again do not harden them again because it just may be that you become a stiff-necked person described in Acts chapter 7, having had a, a lifetime of resisting the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God withdraws from you, never to bring you to God again, never to convict you again, to leave you the way that you want to be, under your own command, and headed to your own destruction. When can this happen? I'm, I am not, you all know, I try to scare the hell out of you kind of preacher. But when can this happen? This can happen today. Jesus makes a point to say that. He says, this age or the age to come. This age or the age to come. That means that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit withdraws from you today. And that it will be unforgivable and eternally so. Plead with you this morning, don't harden your heart again, brother. Don't harden your heart again, my friend, my neighbor, my partner. Do not harden your hearts again. Soften them. Be sorrowful over your sin. Be drawn to God. Because there are no age limits. There are no time limits. It could be as a teenager. It could be as a 70-year-old. We do not know. Do not harden your heart again. Be drawn to the Father. Be convicted of your sin and repent. 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 Christian, should this not cause us to take more seriously the working of the Spirit in our own hearts? For far too many of us, we were once humbled by our sin. We were once softened by the Spirit. We were once drawn near to God, and yet our hearts seem to be growing cold again. Now when the Spirit prompts us, we still find ourselves resisting Him and hardening our hearts to Him. Christian, man or woman of God, soften your heart to the Lord. Follow after the gracious promptings of the Spirit and submit to Him and follow Him and do what He is drawing you to do. How many more people would hear the gospel if Christians softened their hearts to the Spirit? 
How many more missionaries would be called up out of this congregation if you would soften your heart to the Spirit and submit to His just gentle promptings? How many more orphans would be fed? How many more places would the gospel go? How different would our workplaces be if Christians would just submit to the prompting and the drawing and the softening of the Spirit? Understand how seriously Jesus takes the denial and the rejection of the Spirit's life work in your life. You know what the job of the Christian is? The job of the Christian is to stand shoulder to shoulder by the power of the Spirit and in the Spirit and with the Spirit and to plead with men and women just as the Spirit is pleading with them to come to Christ, come to Christ, repent of your sin, soften your heart, open your eyes, come to Christ. So that through the work of the Spirit, some of them might be saved. John MacArthur tells a story of a battle that happened in the icy North Atlantic in World War II. He said that six planes took off from the aircraft carrier on what was a particularly dark night. He says these planes went on their mission, and as they went under mission, the carrier itself came under fire, and the captain ordered that the whole ship have a blackout so that the enemy could no longer see them. And so they turned out all the lights on the ship, and the six planes came flying back, and they could not see where to land, and they radioed in, asking them to turn on the lights just for a short time, that they might be able to land. But the captain radioed back and said that it could not be done, because to save those six would potentially risk the thousands that were on board. And so tragically, the six planes flew around in the sky until eventually they ran out of gas and crashed into the icy North Atlantic and perished. You know, it may just be that eventually you resist God and resist God and resist God and one day he shuts off the light. And the only option that you will have left will be that of perishing. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we take your word seriously. We take your charges seriously. We take your warnings seriously. 